You're listening to the Living Presence Podcast, exploring faith, meeting the world, from East Gwillimbury, Ontario. Welcome to episode, I just had to check, 32. Welcome to episode 32 of the Living Presence Podcast. My name is Brianne Swan, and I am the community minister with the Living Presence Ministry, an emergent community ministry of the United Church of Canada in East Gwillimbury, Ontario, where we serve with gratitude upon the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Chippewa and Wendat peoples. Throughout this past weekend, I have been watching as Hurricane Dorian has made its way up the Atlantic coast. At this point, the catastrophic storm has left at least 44 people dead in the Bahamas, two people dead in the United States. As many as 70,000 people have been left homeless due to the storm in the Bahamas. And roughly 800 people were stranded on an island off the coast of North Carolina, just cut off by the flooding. Thousands more across the U.S. eastern seaboard are without power, and at least 35,000 residents of the Canadian Maritimes have lost their power as well. Halifax has been pounded by these high winds. And watching the videos... I can't help but be reminded of the awesome power of nature. Although for hundreds of years, Christians have worked with translations of English Bibles telling us that humankind has dominion over the natural world, it seems pretty clear that Mother Nature didn't get that note. Hurricane force winds will win every time. And all we can try to do is be good stewards of the earth and hope that our impact on global warming will not lead to more and more of these brutally catastrophic storms. I was pondering these storms as my friend's song came up in my iTunes playlist. Kirsten is a brilliant singer-songwriter and all-around wonderful person who lives in Toronto. Her song Mad Mile describes her experience of getting caught with a friend while kayaking in a terrible storm off the coast of New Zealand in a section of water known as the Mad Mile. We'll hear that song in a moment, but first, here's what's coming up on this episode. We'll hear about Jesus speaking to a crowd, talking about hating one's mother and father, which seems kind of strange for a guy who keeps talking about loving each other, until we take the time to pull it all apart. We'll have a little early Christian history lesson about what it would have meant to be a Christ follower in the years after Jesus' death, and what declaring Christian faith might cost somebody. 
We'll then hear a common profession of faith called a new creed, which is one of the United Church of Canada's faith statements and widely used in worship services across the country. We'll hear music by American duo of Sea and Stone. But first, here is my buddy Kirsten Jones and her song Mad Mile. You can find Kirsten and her music by going to www.kirstenjones.com or by going to our show notes.
Hi, this is Sarah Miller with Denise Borsier and Mary Miller, and we're in Toronto, Ontario, and we are sitting in my psychotherapy office on the couch, reading from Luke 14, 25 to 33. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned to them and said, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, Yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. That was In Generational Order... Denise Boursier, Sarah Miller, and Mary Miller, reading from Sarah's therapy office in Toronto, Ontario. And on first reading, it kind of feels like Jesus and his parents might be in need of some family therapy, because this is a pretty jarring passage. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. There's talk about leaving behind possessions and carrying crosses. I wonder what it might have felt like to be part of that crowd Jesus is addressing. Like, maybe that was the day I finally convinced one of my little brothers to join me in something Jesus-y. Maybe they came because I promised there'd be cookies afterwards. And then Jesus starts going on about hating our siblings. Thanks, Jesus. Thanks a lot. In the last couple of episodes, Jesus has been kind of a Debbie Downer. We heard last week about how Jesus started giving some rather provocative seating suggestions at a gathering where he was the guest. And now we have all this talk of hating our families. So the first thing that is probably helpful to understand here is that this is an example of how poorly some Greek and Hebrew words turn out when they are translated into English. I am not even close to an expert in Koine Greek. I mean, I even had to double-check that I was pronouncing Koine Greek correctly. But I'm really, really glad there are folks out there who have spent a lot of time studying this stuff so that we have some added layers of information to work with in this passage. What has been translated from the Greek as hate 
doesn't really accurately get across what Luke describes Jesus as saying in this passage. Perhaps something closer would be to disfavor or to disregard because it highlights the shame and honor system out of which this dialogue emerges. The second thing that is helpful to keep in mind is that Luke is writing approximately 85 common era or 90 common era, about 50 years after Jesus' death. The author of Luke never knew Jesus. The Jewish temple had been destroyed 15 to 20 years earlier, and there are major divides between the Jewish community and Jewish Christ followers. In the years after this book began circulating, the mixed Gentile and Jewish communities reading Luke were likely meeting in secret due to persecution by the Romans. And by 150, Christians are accused of vile things, including cannibalism, particularly of babies and small children. But you can kind of understand where those rumors might start, with language about drinking the blood and eating the body of Christ. I'm about to go on a bit of a sidetrack here. When I was a young child growing up in a small country church, one of the women would bake a loaf of bread every time we served communion. And this bread, it was fantastic. This bread had all the kids lined up and eager to get their piece for communion. We would take a big chunk and only dip the bread as little as we could possibly get away with. I'm not sure I ever really took communion with any reverence until I was in my teens. The bread was that good. And then after the service, the kids would be given the leftover bread to share, and we would tear that loaf of bread apart, the symbol of Jesus's body and his excruciating sacrifice, and we would eat it screaming such obscene things, such as, I got his toe, I'm eating his nose, I'm eating his left ear. This is the kind of thing that would never go down in a Catholic or Anglican church. One day, one of the elders saw these shenanigans taking place and told us that we were all going to hell. And all I could think was, well, at least hell has tasty bread. But the point, the point is, it was dangerous to be a Christian and even more dangerous to be public about it. The level and quality of danger shifted and morphed all the way into the 4th century, but it was not easy to be a Christ follower. What's more, while the vast number of early Christians were people from lower classes, there were some prominent and wealthy followers as well. The very beginning of Luke's gospel is an address to a man named Theophilus, who many scholars believe would have been the author's patron. Those wealthy Jesus followers would have been in community with slaves, with the poor, 
and they would have had much to lose in status by associating themselves with this subversive movement. That is what Luke, through Jesus, is talking about here. He's not saying that in order to follow him, somebody must punch their mom or attack their siblings. He's not saying those with possessions are not allowed to follow him. He's not demanding that everybody gathered and listening go out and follow him to death. But that may be the cost of following him. It is a warning. And Jesus is wanting the crowds to make an educated choice. So he's laying it all out for them. In a first and second century context, to follow Jesus likely meant the disruption of familial relationships. It likely meant disinheritance. And for some, it meant death, depending on the whims of the state. This is not magic Jesus who can fix everything on a whim. There is a real cost to Christian discipleship. Everything along the spectrum of not being able to fully participate in Hellenistic culture to possibly being the victim of violence and not being able to retaliate. My husband and I have set aside Friday nights as our date night. We are both so busy during the week that we actually have to make this commitment, put it into our calendar so that we have some hangout time. Otherwise, we could go weeks without having any sort of conversation more meaningful than, are you able to pick up bread on the way home from work? This weekend, we decided to sit down and watch The Family, a new Netflix miniseries detailing the infiltration of a secretive Christian organization into the highest levels of politics in the United States and worldwide. I've only made it through one episode, but it was chilling. And the passage that Sarah, Denise, and Mary read for us today, it was cited over and over again. People turned their backs on their families in order to live within insular communities designed to brainwash them into service, supposedly for Jesus, into injecting what they perceived as Jesus's mission into political discourse. But always behind the scenes, pulling the strings, always in secret. And watching it, it was one of those moments where I wondered how the people in the documentary and my people, my family and my friends, how we're all working from the same foundational book. How were we all reading Jesus's words and coming away with such different calls to action? Because when I hear this passage, what I hear 
is Jesus and Luke warning his potential disciples that to follow him means one needs to be willing to possibly turn their back on a comfortable life, to stand alongside fellow followers who are slaves and living on the fringes of society, to understand that embracing a faith that so deeply rejects Roman culture will leave them a target. It's almost like Jesus is asking, do you have what it takes? What I do not hear is a call to infiltrate, or worse, to become the establishment to endorse empire or corporate monopoly or any number of things that prevent us from loving deeply, radically, and authentically. I do hear a call to be prepared to stand up for the right thing, even if it costs us something. Maybe it's being a whistleblower within a large company And speaking the truth costs somebody their livelihood. Maybe it's saying no to the head of your political party, and it costs you your cabinet position. Or maybe it's sitting around the dinner table, listening to your dad asking, why don't those lazy Indians just get over it and find a job already? And actually saying something back to him calling him out. Or being in a work meeting and pushing back at the mansplaining. Or sitting with a group who are saying that Christians, God, Jesus, it's all stupid. And having the courage to speak up and say, actually, this whole Jesus thing is kind of important to me. And I'd love to talk to you about it. I've had to learn how to have those conversations. And I still find it very hard. At its deepest and most authentic, being part of a Christian community is not about being part of a social club. It is a commitment to understanding that it's not all about me. It is not all about me. It's about following the example of a man who died brutally while challenging the status quo. It's about constantly allying with those society ignores. It's about having faith that there is something in this vast holy mystery that is worth living for. Even when it's hard, even when it's painful, and even when it costs. Puzzles of pictures all burned up Said we burned up all our love 
That was Of Sea and Stone, with their song Mother and Father from their 2017 self-titled album. You can find them online at www.ofseaandstone.com. We are not alone. We live in God's world. We believe in God, who has created and is creating, who has come in Jesus, the Word made flesh, to reconcile and make new, who works in us and others by the Spirit. We trust in God. We are called to be the church, to celebrate God's presence, to live with respect in creation, to love and serve others, to seek justice and resist evil, 
to proclaim Jesus crucified and risen, our judge and our hope, in life, in death, in life beyond death, God is with us. We are not alone. Thanks be to God. listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with a couple of parables from Jesus, one about a lost sheep and one about a lost coin. We'll have more words, more music, but until then, take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll see you soon. is brought to you by the Living Presence Ministry, a community ministry of the United Church of Canada. You can find us online at www.livingpresenceministry.org.